This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about the insights about dealing with income tax debt uh, from a BC debt help expert. So Revenue Canada, and pay attention folks, Revenue Canada says 9 out of 10 Canadians file and pay their income taxes on time. So that's pretty good. That's a big majority. But there's still a portion of Canadians that carry a tax debt. And of course, that means costs, high stress. So it's so great, Blair, that you're going to talk about some key facts that we should know about tax debt, because I feel like it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different than our regular consumer debt. Would you agree? I would totally agree. It's definitely different in the way that it can arise. You know, sometimes, you know, even without your knowledge, you don't know the actions that you're taking are leading to a tax debt where you typically do know when you're borrowing money. Uh, and then certainly from the recourse uh, that the creditor has, CRA's got a whole lot more tools and they're a whole lot easier to access than the average person or a credit card company or something who is owed money. So definitely it's a little bit different. Uh, I think it's useful to talk about, you know, how do tax debts arise typically? And there's a there's a few ways that they can arise that are sometimes unexpected for individuals. So, you know, someone being self-employed and never paying a dollar of tax, that's not unanticipated that they're going to owe some money at the end of the year if they earned a bunch of money and didn't pay tax on it. But a couple ways that people can get into trouble unexpectedly with taxes, first off, is with cashing in RRSP funds. So what happens when you cash in your RRSPs is the financial institution that holds that RRSP, they're going to withhold a certain amount of tax, sometimes it's 10 to 20% or in that range, and they're going to give you the net amount. So right away, some people are surprised, saying, well, I withdrew 5000 for my RRSP, why am I getting 4500 Well, because there's some tax withheld. But then at the end of the year, you need to understand that depending on your marginal tax rate or the amount of taxes that you have to pay based on your income, that amount that was withheld from your RRSPs may not have been even close to enough. So depending on the income level, it could have been, you know, 40% of that money should have been withheld for taxes. And if they only withheld 10% at source, uh, when you did when you made the withdrawal and gave you the amount, they're going to come looking for that other 30% uh, when you file your taxes, you're going to have a balance owing. So be careful when you're cashing in RRSPs that you actually put aside enough money to cover uh, the eventual tax bill that's going to come due at the end of the year. So I've had people definitely have done that over successive years and just really ended up in a tax situation where they needed our help just based on cashing in the RRSPs. Um, a second way that, that tax this... that can arrive. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, no, feel free. Go ahead to the multiple jobs. I think this is a really important one because it's something you're relying on somebody else to make sure they don't take too much off or not enough off. And you've got another gig on the side. So it's an important one for sure. Well, yeah, talk about something that you think you're, to, you're doing the best that you can, working hard, trying to get ahead, and then suddenly get smacked with the consequences, unfortunately, is when you take on a second or even a third job, uh, you need to be careful that on those additional jobs that your employer is going to withhold tax at the correct amount. 
because when you work for a single employer, they estimate your income over the year and they say, okay, if you're in this tax bracket, we're going to withdraw this amount of taxes from every paycheck. But if you work for a second or a third employer, they don't know your total income unless you sit down explicitly and tell them. Um, so they're just going to put you typically in you know the lowest possible tax bracket, uh, withhold the least possible amounts of tax. And then at the end of the year, when you go and do your taxes and you find out, well, based on my income, the second and third job, they didn't withhold near enough taxes from my paycheck. Well, then you can imagine how demoralizing that can feel that I worked so hard in these other jobs. And now I've got a tax bill at the end of the year, money I've already spent because I thought it was free and clear, but it just wasn't enough from CRA's perspective. Is there something that you can specifically ask your employer to do and and hope that they do it or, or are they obliged to do it if you ask them or how does that work sometimes? Yeah, good question. Well, what's the solution here? So the solution is just to be transparent and communicate with each of your employers and for your second and or third job. And trust me, I see this a lot, especially in, in the lower mainland here. It's to have that conversation with your employer and ask them to withdraw more taxes than would typically be required based on that income level. You know, if you overestimate it, they withdraw too much taxes. Well, guess what? You got a nice tax refund at the end of the year. It's money that you put away and comes back to you, but it's a much better alternative than actually owing some money. So definitely sit down with your employers, be transparent, say, here's my total income, here's the tax rate that I think I'll sit into, um, and then absolutely they shouldn't have any issue adjusting that withholding from your paycheck. Now, people who are self-employed might fall into a special category as well if they've got a salary job and maybe they're doing something on the side. Uh, so self-employed people have to pay attention. Oh, absolutely. When you're self-employed, you know, it, it always shocks me that anybody can just set up a business, you know, just tomorrow and be self-employed. No one's going to sit them down and explain to them all the rules for it, but they're going to be held accountable to the letter of those rules, even right from day one. So one spot where I see people get into trouble very quickly is with GST. So you need to figure out if you're self-employed, whether you need to collect GST for your goods or services or not. And in most cases, the answer is yes. If you're earning more than $30,000 in revenue, you need to collect and remit GST to the government. And if you fail to do so, uh, regardless of whether you actually collected it from your clients or not, the government's going to say, well, hey, 5% of what you collected, that's owed to us. And the government views GST debt as even more severe than income tax debt because it's viewed as what's called a trust amount. So the idea is the consumer, when they're paying you, the self-employed person, they're paying you for your services. They're also putting 5% for GST that you're supposed to hold in trust for the government. And if you fail to do so, uh, the government can take some pretty aggressive actions, including freezing your bank accounts, seizing assets, so on and so forth. So the most important thing here is just to really understand upfront, are you required to be a GST registrant? Uh, and to make sure if you are, that you're remitting those funds to GST. I, I suggest on a monthly basis, you can do quarterly or annually, but on a monthly basis, you just know you're not going to get very behind if you're clearing that 12 times a year. I just want to throw in here as well that, you know, if you don't want to wait any longer, you want to take some action, you think you're in, that that we're speaking to you in your situation, the best way to take some action is give Sands & Associates a call or log on to their website and get an appointment. It's nice and easy to do. The address is sands-trustee.com and their phone number is 1-800-661-3030. I guess the number one thing when it comes to income tax, or at least it is for me, is always file on time. I'm so concerned about the deadlines and how they can sort of shift around a little bit depending on what year it is or what position I'm in. So filing on time's got to be way up there in terms of the best thing you can do to start off well. 
Yeah, that's number one at the top of the list. It's just down, you know, the, the Nike slogan, just do it. You know, you've got to file your taxes every year. Even if you don't owe anything, it's in your best interest to file because you might need to prove your income for credit or housing applications. And if you want to receive benefits like quarterly GST checks, or if you're a senior, the guaranteed income supplement, or your Canada child benefit um, as, a, as a couple or individual with children, those are all very important reasons why you need to file your taxes because you won't get those benefits otherwise. And it is your civic obligation. You know, you won't go to jail for owing tax debt in Canada. I've never seen that, but I have seen warrants for arrests for people who have not filed in 20 years and CRA is just at the end of their ropes and doesn't know what to do that's going to get this person's attention. So it's very important just to get your taxes filed each, each year. And there are people that can help you with that, including us at Sands and Associates. If you have debt, sometimes getting you caught up on your taxes is a, is a key part of what we do. But it's important that you do it on time to the deadline. And April 30th is the deadline year in and year out. So April 30th is when your return has to be in. And if you're not self-employed, your payment for any taxes owing has to be in at that point. Um, if you are self-employed, uh, for June 15th, you have until then to file. So a little bit of extra time to get all your books in order but you still have to have paid at April 30th. So you're required to estimate what your taxes are. And if you're wrong, you're going to be paying a little bit of a difference there or getting a refund back. But April 30th is a very important payment deadline. And what's really important about that deadline is if you don't hit that deadline to file your taxes and get the balances paid, you're going to be charged with some interest that compounds daily. And what can be even more significant is the late filing penalty. Um, so if it's your first year being late on filing your taxes, any amounts that are owing are hit with an immediate 5% penalty. And then for every month that that return is late, it goes up by another percent. So it could be, you know, 16, 17% by the end of the year. And if it's not your first year being delinquent and filing your taxes on time, it's doubled. So it's a 10% hit uh, to the balance right away, plus 2% per month. That's higher than a lot of credit cards, payday loans, uh, interest rates charge. So you've really got to be uh, on CRA's schedule or their, their interest rates and penalties can be quite significant. And tax debt isn't something that ever goes away, does it, unless you actually take, do something about it? No, tax debt doesn't expire. Um, it's one of those few debts that are out there where there's no statute of limitations. So you can't wait it out. Um, you can't, you know, just make a plea of poverty and say, hey, this debt is gone. I can never pay it. Um, no, obviously, if you've got no ability to pay CRA, you know, they're not going to be able to do that much to you. But it's not the case where you can just, you know, go silent for a few years and just think, well, when I pop back up again, this tax debt is going to be gone. So the only way to deal with CRA is you have to take formal steps. You either have to work with them on a repayment plan and typically they'll be you know flexible to a degree but usually it's about a six-month payment plan is what they'll sign on to and maybe they'll give you some some breaks on the interest and the penalties uh, but they won't be able to reduce the principal at all and if that doesn't work linking directly with CRA uh, the only way that you can achieve tax forgiveness uh, is to work directly with a licensed insolvency trustee and do either a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy which we talk about a ton on the show here. Yeah, and uh, I just want to stress, too, that a licensed insolvency trustee is the only one, is the only one that can deal with CRA on any level in terms of a tax debt. Well, that's right, Elaine. I think it's important for people to know because you do see a lot of advertisements for tax lawyers and things like that. And there's definitely a niche a tax lawyer can play where if you think it's unfair the way that you've been assessed, it's just not right. You need to dispute some of the facts behind your tax debt. That's where a tax lawyer can assist you. But if you say, well, yeah, I just made too much income or I didn't ref I didn't you know, remit GST as I should have. And there's no mystery about the tax debt. That's absolutely where you need the help of a licensed insolvency trustee. Uh, it's going to be a heck of a lot cheaper than, than paying a tax lawyer per hour. And we've got 
to define solution that's actually going to help you deal with that debt. We're not going to dispute it. We're just going to help you discharge it and get rid of it at the end. Now, we just got about another minute or so. I bet one of the questions that comes up for, for you from people are, does CRA, can CRA put a lien on my house or how much power does CRA have when it comes to my stuff? Yeah, I think that's a great way to finish here, Elena, not to put the fear into people at all, but CRA has more power than you could imagine. <laughs> um, so I say that as a trustee, seeing what all of their creditors can do, and almost with no notice. So they've got to send, you know, one written notice, but whether that's received or not, if they don't really care, um, CRA can put a lien on your house. So if you've got a house that's not mortgaged completely, or even if it is, CRA will just go in second position. CRA can absolutely place a lien on your house so when the house is eventually sold, they'll get paid out in full for their amounts that's owing for taxes. Uh, they can also go for your employment income. They don't need to sue you first. They can start to seize wages. Even pensions can be seized up to 100% by CRA, which no other creditor in Canada can attach to pension income, and certainly not for 100%, but CRA has the tools to do it. It's definitely not their first step, but they've got very robust steps they can take to collect if you don't deal with the debt head on. So the best way to deal with that debt head on is go see uh, either Blair or someone from their office, Sands and Associates, they've got offices all over British Columbia. Get that debt-free, get debt-free, and connect with a non-judgmental debt help professional. Sands and Associates, their website, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, to book your, your free confidential debt consolidation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about risky debt cycles. And this is going to be an interesting uh, segment because we're specifically talking about payday loans and the amount of risk that's out there. Uh, around payday loans. Uh, it's so interesting because it, when, when it comes to alternative borrowing, lots of debt experts caution payday loans are among the riskiest types of debts to have. And, and yet they seem, Blair, that they're so much more available than they ever were before. Uh, the, the offices and the places that you can go to, to, uh, do payday loans, um, are considerable, right? I mean, it seems like it's a growing industry to me. Oh, yes, Elaine. There's, there's just tons, whether it's brick and mortar, um, places popping up all the time, you know, some very you know, large national banners, some, you know, very small regional, maybe just a single location or two. Uh, even online, you can find, you know, payday lenders these days. So it's, it's very easy to get into the, into this type of debt. Um, and payday loans are typically, they're a special type of debt. It's usually your last resort. So it's, it's what you go to yeah. when, you know, typically you've been turned down for a bunch of other types of debt that, you know, might have better terms. Uh, and the big challenge with payday loans uh, is that they're very addictive. So I've said before, there's a crack cocaine of borrowing. Um, you, you get one, you need a second, you need a third. I see people with 10 to 15 different payday loans moving money around crazily each month just trying to keep all the balls in the air. Uh, so the challenges are the interest rate is so high, all the costs and the fees, that often when you have one you need to take out a second or a third to actually pay off the cost of just that first loan, and it creates a vicious cycle. So it's very, as you said, risky financing, and I'm really happy today we're going to delve into a bunch, um, you know, the numbers, the structure, how these work, uh, and hopefully give people some good insights that will help them try to avoid using this type of financing. 
Okay, well, let's let's start with the actual payday loan, how it's set up, uh, and how and how it works. How, why is it you know how it becomes so risky for the borrower? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a payday loan, so it's offered you know usually physically in store, but now online, and it's by privately owned companies. So this isn't um, you know your large banks typically. It's not a government organization. It's a private organization. Just starts off to offer payday loans, and they are subject to provincial regulations. So it's a short term loan. And the regulation state, you can borrow up to $1,500. Um, the objective is a payday loan. It's meant to cover a cash shortfall for a short period. So the idea is, like the name, it's in between your paydays. You're going to pay it off in your next paycheck. Uh, and in BC, that's up to $1,500. You've got up to 62 days to pay your payday loan back. So it's not supposed to be long-term financing. Uh, and if you don't repay your payday loan, plus the interest and the fees, you face even more interest and fees. So... What about an installment loan? Is that the next piece that we want to talk about in relation to this? Because how is that different? Well, that's important for people to know. The payday lenders started off a number of years ago, and they were just payday loans. They were just the $1,500, pay it back in up to 60 days, and that was their, their bread and butter. Now, what I've seen in the last couple of years especially is just an explosion in what's called installment loans with all the big payday lenders doing this, uh, and it's typically for an amount larger than that of a payday loan. It can be much larger. I've seen ten, fifteen thousand, 15000 even $20,000 uh, installment loans, and although the cost is usually lower than that of a payday loan, they still can be very, very expensive, um, much more expensive than other costs of borrowing. Um, and just in terms of who uses payday loans, you know, it's the vast majority of Canadians luckily don't need to resort to payday loans, but there's up to 2% of Canadians uh, in recent surveys that said they're habitual payday loan borrowers. Um, and what's interesting is how this changes amongst vulnerable groups. So for low-income households, it's doubled its 4% incidence. For Indigenous peoples, it's doubled again to 8% incidence. Uh, And for single parents, 8% of single parents have used payday loans in the past year, according to a recent survey. So it can be people really at the edges of our financial system who really have a tough time accessing financing anywhere else who who are being hit with the highest cost financing, unfortunately. And that's the cycle that you're talking about. You owe money. You can't get out of it. You've got to borrow more, more money to pay and, and on and on and on and on it goes. That's exactly right. So look, can we talk about some of the charges? Like, do you actually know what, what these companies are charging these days? And, and, and then talk about why this type of borrowing uh, has such a high cost. Yes, indeed. And I'm really happy to give some concrete numbers because I think the way that payday loans are often marketed, it's not that clear that the interest rate is so high. So, you know, first off, you need to understand even accessing the money you've borrowed can sometimes have additional costs. So some payday lenders might ask you to take your loan via a prepaid card and they charge you extra cost to activate it and use the card. So setting that aside, which I think is just quite distasteful, but I'm sure there's some objective of saying, well, this is easy access, but I don't just give the cash is my opinion. But putting that that aside, let's talk about the borrowing cost. So each province and territory has some different rules and restrictions. But in BC, the maximum fee for borrowing a two-week $100 loan is $15. Okay, so it doesn't sound like a lot. And that's what you see advertised all the time is a loan is $100, uh, sorry, $15 on $100. Uh, Okay, sounds high, but... Uh, If you think the maximum legal interest rate in Canada is 60%, so in the criminal code of Canada, there can be no interest rate charged higher than 60%. A credit card is usually in the range of, you know, 12, maybe to 19 to 29%, somewhere in that range. If you actually do the math on a two-week payday loan, that's $15 on 100, that's 400% interest. So... 
six times higher, six and a half times higher than the maximum allowed by law is what you're, what you're actually paying on a small payday loan. And maybe $15 doesn't sound so bad, but if you actually look through an example, and this is provided by the government of BC, they're actively trying to encourage people to look at all of their options before they borrow from a payday lender. If you borrow $300 with a payday loan, within 14 days, you're paying back $345. And as we've calculated, you know, that's about 391% interest, so quite high. Um, if you actually used a line of credit, and let's say the line of credit had a $5 admin fee and a 7% rate, instead of $345, you're at $305, so about one-ninth the interest charge. Uh, if you used your overdraft, so sometimes people are just scared of you know approaching their bank for an overdraft or want to stay out of it all the time, it might be a $5 fee and maybe 19% interest, so you're at $307, still a whole lot less than $345 for a payday loan. And even a credit card, if you had to do this, which you definitely don't recommend, but if you had to borrow on your credit card, let's say there's a small fee of 5 bucks to access the funds and a 21% interest rate, you're still at $307. So the very expensive credit card cash advance is going to cost you about 7 bucks. The payday loan is still going to cost you $45. So it's so significant, so much more expensive than other sources of financing. It's easy to see how that can be a cycle that you're paying back the second loan and then you're left short because you paid all this high interest. So you need another loan and then you pay that back and you need a further loan. So again, the cycle of payday loans is something I see just about every day. And it's just the whole idea of just don't start with one because it's very difficult to just end with one. And I totally understand what you're saying when you, when you, when you give the other examples in terms of a line of credit or overdraft protection. The average person just doesn't even think about those things because it's a bank oriented thing. I would, I would think that's why I, I wouldn't think of that. I think, oh, well, the guy's on the corner. He, there's his store or he sent me an email or whatever. That's got to be easier than having to go to a bank and ask that question. Well, and that's what the, the niche is, the, the value to the payday lender industry is this is providing access to credit to those who might be underbanked, so to speak, or don't have a great relationship with their bank, or maybe don't even have a, a bank account in some cases. Um, so, you know, a payday lender is going to give you access to funds, but it's at such a significant cost that we really encourage people to explore every other alternative first. Um, you know, even if your payday loan is because you're going to be late for your rent, it might be worth talking to your landlord. And, you know, if you do it in the right, respectful way and have a good plan that you could execute on, you might have saved yourself all of that hassle and just you know pay the rent a little bit late that month uh, you do need to understand that you have rights when you take out a payday loan so if you've just signed one recently and are concerned about it you've got two full business days where you can cancel the loan and not pay any penalties uh, and you always have the right to repay the loan early without paying any additional penalties so those are a couple of your outs there uh, but a lot of people again they're, they're just trapped in that cycle of the high cost I want to mention, too, uh, if you're in this situation and you want to take some action, go see somebody from Sands & Associates. Go see Blair, uh, and they have offices all over the province. Uh, 1-800-661-3030 is the website, or is the phone number, and the website address is sands-trustee.com. And just get some good, free information on steps to take, and maybe they can give you a hand with this. So beyond the expense of basic costs, there are some areas uh, of caution that you think it's really important for people to know about when it comes to this time, this kind of borrowing, Blair. Yeah, a couple of things to highlight right off the top is be very careful with online payday lenders. So a lot of them aren't licensed. Uh, they will not follow provincial rules or may not um, in your jurisdiction. So the things we talked about, the two-day right to cancel and pay things off early, if you're borrowing from an online lender, that could be tough to get them held accountable to D.C. law. And if they're located outside of Canada, it could be just impossible to have anything, you know, 
judicially set in Canada that's going to be binding on them. So just be very careful if it's an online lender. Um, also be careful that sometimes what you think you're doing online, applying for a loan, uh, you're actually just giving your money to what's called a lead generation website. So you put in all your information, what you're looking for, um, and then they're not going to actually give you the loan, but they're going to sell your information to a bunch of other providers who then might start following up with you with unsolicited offers, calls, maybe even harassment, uh, where you end up with not the best deal, but just the one that, you know, kind of screamed the loudest in your in your ear uh, and made you just want, you want them to go away. Uh, you need to be careful, too, about upfront fees. So it's illegal for a company to request that you pay an upfront fee to obtain your loan. Um, so the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, um, they actually said this on, on their website, and I quote it, uh, is don't fall for promises that you'll get a loan regardless of your credit problems. If you have poor credit or haven't established good credit history yet, it's unlikely that anyone will lend you money without charging large fees. So the whole idea of it seems too good to be true, you know, great loans, low rates, no credit, doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, generally, it is too good to be true, uh, and you'll be cautious about that. And, you know, finally, you can always check with Consumer Protection BC to verify if a payday lender actually holds a license in the province. So if you do end up needing to take this step to take a payday loan, at least make sure they're licensed so that you do have some recourse through Consumer Protection BC. We've just got about a minute left, Blair, and I know this is a large question for a short amount of time, but what are some of the other real warning signs that might signal it's time for somebody to get some good advice and to get out of this cycle? I mean, is it even possible? It feels pretty dire. No, it's absolutely possible to get out of this cycle. I think, you know, a big warning sign, if you're habitually using payday loans, that's probably the number one warning sign. It means if something is not going according to plan, if you're always paying, you know, close to this 400% interest rate on some funds, uh, you should sit down with a professional to figure out, well, what's the root cause of this? Is it because all of your other debts are so high, you're not left with enough money to get yourself by, and you have to resort to payday loans to, to fill the gap? Um, you know, that's a big warning sign. Just even having a single payday loan, let alone three, four, five or more, if you're carrying multiple, you definitely should be phoning us up, have a chat, and we'll, we'll try to get, get it to a point where you don't need to use payday loans. But the biggest warning signs that we see just in general is if you're stuck in a cycle of just making minimum payments on your debts. So you've got some debts, they don't seem to go down each each month, but you make all your money to minimum payments and you can't do any more than that. That's when you need some advice from a licensed insolvency trustee to stop that cycle, to freeze the interest, to get you out of debt, and you can get back in control of your life. I'll give you the website one more time, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Set up that first consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I'm going to talk about credit card debt. Ugh. Something that I think of every time I use my credit card, I tell you, uh, just adding to the total and knowing that I got to look after it at the end of the month. Uh, super convenient payment tool for everybody or almost everybody and very common too uh i bet hey blair like everybody is using credit cards i mean there's they seem to be so available and so easy to get that hasn't changed has it 
No, so it's definitely it's a trend that seems to go in one direction with, you know, just more and more credit cards being issued. So the latest Canadian Bankers Association survey that I've seen, uh, it said there's 76.2 million visas and MasterCards, so just those two cards in Canada. And what's our population? 35, 38 million. So you do the math there. <laughs> and, you know, 95% of adult Canadians have at least one credit card. So 95% is pretty well everybody. So it's a very rare person that you see that, you know, is just dealing with cash or debit. Most people do have at least one credit card. And from our perspective, uh, I can't remember the last time I've seen an individual who didn't have a credit card debt uh, when they were doing a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. It's pretty rare. It's just it's an easy type of debt to get into, and it can be pretty difficult to get out of as well on the other side. And we've talked about this a lot over the years, uh, that the terms and conditions on that card are, are buried deep within the, what, the five, six, seven, eight pages of super small printed out material that you get when your credit card arrives. And, uh, and that's, that's the thing, right? I mean, that's the thing that you've got to pay attention to because they are deep in terms of what you need to do and how you need to handle this thing in order to for it to work with you instead of against you. Yeah, that's right, Elena. And it can be intimidating to look through all those terms and conditions where, when you're getting a new credit card, but even spending just five or 10 minutes and looking at a few key categories of, you know, minimum payments, how is that calculated? My interest-free grace period, you know, what does that exclude? Uh, because sometimes you're going to make some purchases and you're going to find actually there's no interest-free grace period because the benefit of a, of a credit card typically is the purchases that you put on there, you're not going to pay any interest if you pay that bill at the end of the month. There's about a 21-day grace period. But some people are quite surprised to learn, well, for cash advances, for example, there is no grace period whatsoever. So from the moment that you take out a cash advance on a credit card, you're subject to the you know 19 to 29% interest rate on most standard cards. Uh, and some people are surprised to say, well, I thought it would just be something I pay at the end of the month. Well, no, you've got interest that accrues from that day. Um, so you've got to clear that interest uh, right from the day that you borrow. But also some things that aren't as clear as cash advances are treated as cash-like transactions. So things like wire transfers, uh, money orders, uh, those credit card checks that they can sometimes send you in the mail and you wonder what to do with them. Well, if you use them, it's not like writing a regular check that comes out of your bank account with no interest. It's the same as a cash advance. And even gaming transactions like lottery ticket purchases or using your credit card at the casino, which again, something I'd never recommend, but people do, uh, that's also treated uh, as a cash advance. So definitely be careful that you understand what's interest-free and what's not. Wow, that's interesting. I had no idea that gaming transactions, so they're calculated the moment that you use your credit card to purchase them. Is that right? That's right. They say it's a cash-like transaction. Wow, that's interesting. I had no idea. Not that I'm, you know, consider myself super smart in all these areas, but that's quite something. I bet not everybody knows that. No, I, I think that's the case. And, you know, sometimes you only know about the fees once they actually appear on your on your statement. So a few other fees that people can, can get surprised for is an over-the-limit fee. So, you know, even if you paid the balance off in full, but you went over that limit for, you know, a day or two during the cycle, you can get hit with an over-the-limit fee. And sometimes it's $29, $39, $49. It's not nothing. And you say, well, why is this? Why am I paying this charge? Uh, well, gee, I guess I went over the prescribed limit. And if you call the credit card company, sometimes you can negotiate a bit to get it reduced. But, you know, just be aware if you're going to go over the limit, it's better to be proactive and get them to maybe increase the limit uh, or to consider, you know, is it, is it a good thing for me to be exceeding this limit? Maybe there's something else I can be doing instead. Uh, 
Um, you also need to understand there can be charges for inactive accounts. So if you're not making any transactions on the card, you know, sometimes that can trigger a charge. Uh, currency conversion is an important one as well. So if you're shopping, and obviously we're not doing much cross-border these days, but if and when um, you, know, you do shop in a, in a foreign country, um, there's the currency conversion, but then there's also often as much as 25 or 3% added to that balance for a currency conversion extra charge. Uh, and then you know other charges, if you bounce a payment or miss a payment, there's a lot of little ancillary fees that can really add up. And you just want to be careful. You understand the card completely and what can be charged. So I want to suggest if, if this already sounds like your situation, give Sands and Associates a call. Uh, it's very easy to do. That's a 1-800 number. Uh, it's all, they have offices all over British Columbia, 1-800-661-3030, or check out their website, sands-trustee.com and get in touch. Uh, can you talk about some of the tips on how to, how to pay off credit card balances? Cause it sounds pretty ominous to me. Yeah, so the, the first thing is just the idea of let's try to avoid the balance or at least avoid increasing the balance unnecessarily. So the best practice is only to use the credit card for purchases that you have the cash on hand to pay back right away. So you can either you know use the cash or if you want to use the card because sometimes there's extra warranty or protections, fine, but make sure you can cover those purchases each month. Um, and then with the cash advances, um, just say no. Just don't do cash advances on your credit card. It's very expensive financing um, and usually it's, it's a bad idea. Sometimes people can get a little bit, um, you know, hoodwinked is the wrong idea, but I guess maybe misdirected um, in really focusing on credit card rewards and saying, I want to put all of my spending on the credit card because I'm going to get, you know, a point per dollar or two points per dollar or something like that. Uh, that only makes sense if you're clear on the balance each month. If you even carry the balance for a single month, you've negated probably multiple months worth of those rewards just to the interest fees that you're going to pay. Um, so be careful, you know, not being sucked in by the promise of rewards if that leads to you carrying a balance. Uh, you've, you've lost in that transaction. Uh, you know, some of the best benefits you can have for, with a credit card is just to pay on time and to pay more than the minimum whenever you're able to do so. Because if you're only paying the minimums, as we know from a lot of previous discussions on the show, you know, even $6,000 a debt can be a 40-year payment cycle. And $6,000 is not that significant in the grand scheme of things. But with a minimum payment, you know, that could be the rest of your working life. So you've definitely got to try to pay as much as you can and understand the minimum payment is just not enough. And it's really important to pay attention to the interest rates on these things. That's right. So the interest rate is going to be the key determinant of how long you're going to be stuck in debt if you have a balance. And even a 2 to 3% drop in your interest rate can make paying off that debt so much easier and so much quicker. A lot of people don't realize you can phone up the credit card lender at any point and say, hey, I want a better rate. Um, sometimes people say they're so surprised that, you know, how receptive they were to that. They have this low rate card. I couldn't find it advertised, but they were ready to offer it to me over the phone. They don't want to lose you as a client. And if you say that you've done your research and if you just sit down and Google, you know, best credit card interest rates in Canada, you'll find there's a bunch of low rate cards, often with very low to minimal, uh, even to zero uh, annual fees to them. And that can be a very good tool either with your existing lender or to even consider transferring a balance to a lower rate card uh, as long as you're clear if there's going to be any charges to that, but to do what you can to reduce the interest rate, you might be able to get you know something more in the line of 11 to 12 percent and not 19 to 29 percent. As we kind of come to the end of this segment, Blair, is there, so, is there a list of how to pay off your credit card debt, like what you should do first, what you should do second? Yeah, one thing that I suggest people do, and this is the whole idea of let's try if you 
see if you can get out from this under your own steam, uh, is to sit down, blank sheet of paper, and list all your credit cards by interest rate, highest rates at the top, so typically your store credit cards will be higher than just your bank-issued cards. Look at your monthly budget and figure out how much can you afford to pay beyond the minimum payments. And then what you want to do is to make all the minimum payments on each card, but whatever is left over in your budget that you're able to devote, throw all of that money towards the highest rate card. That's going to be your best bang for the buck. So if there's $500 and you've got four cards and there's they're each $100 minimum payment, you'll make all those minimums, but then you're going to throw the extra $100 on the highest rate card, and that should accelerate you getting out of debt as quick as possible. I think the key, too, is is to sit down with somebody from Sands & Associates and figure out the best course of action, uh, because just doing that may not be enough for some folks. Well, that, that's true, Elaine. So if you sit down and you say, my gosh, I can barely pay the minimums or I can go $10 over, well, then you're going to know, hey, I'm in this for the long haul. I need some help, either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal with the help of Sands & Associates. It's going to eliminate all the credit card debt. And the time to explore the options is before it's so dire that you think you've got nowhere to turn. Do it before you're extremely stressed out. Come in, sit down for a consultation. We'll help you figure out what to do. Yeah, and they're so easy to get a hold of. They've got offices all over British Columbia. Sands-trustee.com is the website, or give them a call and set set up an appointment, 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, we talk about consumer proposals a lot on the show, but as you know, Blair, and I know, and Jeff knows, everybody who's involved in the show knows that not everybody knows what a consumer proposal is and how it works and... um, I just think this is such a good segment for people to learn about possibly something for the first time that's going to help them in the in the long run. Uh, Canadians have access it's to a very powerful legal process in this country that allows someone to consolidate debt without a loan, interest charges, or added fees. So Blair, let's go at it. What is a consumer proposal? How does it work? How do how do you file one in this province? Yeah, with pleasure, Elaine. I'm happy to answer. I sometimes only say half in jest. I feel like my life's purpose is to make people aware of this consumer proposal tool because I couldn't believe I could go to business school, work at an accounting firm, and I had no idea that this tool even existed. And I was deep into the financial system at that point. It was only when a family member needed some help with that I started to research and understand just this great tool that's still so unknown. So what a consumer proposal is, it's a debt solution that's sometimes referred to as a debt settlement proposal, where it allows you to settle your debts for less than what you owe and consolidate all of your debts into one manageable monthly payment. And it's not for the rest of your life. The maximum term is five years and a lot of proposals are shorter than that. So the end goal is to allow the individual to repay the portion of the debt they can afford to repay and achieve a financial fresh start free from debt and not having to resort uh, to a more severe remedy of filing a personal bankruptcy. So the way a proposal works is it allows you to consolidate your debts without borrowing. There's no new interest charges. There's no new lender coming to the table. It's just by law, when you file a proposal, all of the interest that's charged on your debt stops that moment, and all the fees and collection activities also has to stop. So you get the breathing room. You don't have those calls anymore. 
And then with a consumer proposal, it's a question of how much can you reasonably afford to repay on your debt? In some cases, people can afford to repay 100%. They just need to stop the crazy interest. Okay, we can do that. But in a lot of cases, a person's going to pay as little as 20 to 50% of the balance. So what that means in real numbers here is a person who owed $20,000, they might say they can afford to repay 30% of that amount. Um, that would work out to about $6,000, and they could pay that off over a 36-month period at $165. So you can imagine looking at a $20,000 credit card bill or a bunch of bills that add up to that, but the interest charges and the minimum payments, what I'm telling you very clearly is in a consumer proposal, that might be as little as $165 a month to deal with the entire debt, and that payment alone could be less than the interest charges on just a single card that the person is dealing with. It's that life-changing. It gives people you know, their resilience and their chance to make good on the amount of the debt they can afford to repay. Now, Blair, is there, a, is there sort of a, a parameters of what, of what you should owe before you consider a consumer proposal? Yeah, the law gives a good window of definition. So a consumer proposal, you have to owe more than $1,000. And really nobody does a proposal for $1,000. So people do do it for as little as five, seven, ten thousand $10,000 for sure. And the maximum amount is $250,000 of debt. And that doesn't include your mortgage on your principal residence. So whatever your mortgage balance is, that's kept aside. But of the debts that you're going to include in the consumer proposal, uh, up to $250,000 is the level where a proposal can work for you. Okay. And what is it, what does it include? What does it cover? What parts of the debt does it include? Yeah, it's almost easier to say, Elaine, what it doesn't include. It includes just about everything. So just about any consumer debt that you've honestly incurred can be settled, restructured, reduced by a consumer proposal. So the basics like the credit cards, overdrafts, line of credit, your payday loans, all of those, every day we deal with that. Uh, amounts owing to government. People are very surprised to learn that income tax debt, even business GST taxes, even payroll remittances, all of those can be compromised as part of a consumer proposal. Uh, student loans, whether it's private, federal, or provincial, uh, ICBC debt here in BC, if there's something you're held accountable for ICBC, a consumer proposal can be the only option other than a bankruptcy to help you get out of that debt. Um, even if you had a shortfall owing on your vehicle or your mortgage foreclosure or financing, and even if you owed somebody a personal debt. So I think about the only things I haven't listed there are things like child support and alimony. And yeah, those can't be dealt with in a consumer proposal, but most people aren't looking to reduce those obligations. They're looking to make good on those obligations, but it's the other debts that are holding them back and all of that can be helped with a consumer proposal. Okay, so what? How do you start? How do you start to file something uh, like, or, you know, the consumer proposal? Who do I have to go see to do that? Well, you've got to come see a licensed insolvency trustee, and it all starts with a free confidential debt consultation. So, if you start to Google consumer proposals online, you'll find a bunch of trustees offering to help you with that. But you'll also find a bunch of consultants who are saying, oh, come to us, we're going to charge you some fees, but we'll get a better result. You don't need to pay anybody to file a consumer proposal. You just need to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee. You don't need a referral. You can just phone us up directly. Uh, we'll have the first meeting as quick as you're able to, and then we'll help you structure the proposal from there. So step one of the four main steps is to get that first confidential debt consultation. And do I, what do I have to show up? Do, what do I bring to that consultation? 
you know, you just need to bring enough information so that we can have a good sense of what your financial situation is. So we need to understand, well, who do you owe money to um, and how much is owed to each? We need to understand your income, your family size, um, you know, what are the circumstances, who's working, who's living where, and so on and so forth. And then what's your ability to make payments? So how does the budget look each month? And are there significant assets? Is there a bunch of money in the bank that could be part of the proposal? Or are you just living paycheck to paycheck? And the proposal is just going to be based on your ability to pay each month. So in the space of our first consultation of about, you know, usually 30 to 45 minutes, we're going to get all that information together. And then we can put together a projection of what we think the proposal is going to look like. And then you really take over at this point. If we, we're in agreement that this is what I'm going to do, then you do all the hard work, it seems to me. Well, it's, it's easy for us, but yes, definitely we do. We do this hundreds of times a month. And the expression is that we step into your shoes. So with respect to your debts, you no longer have to deal with anybody who's been calling you, harassing you, threatening you, anything like that. The trustee, trustee steps in like a referee to everyone you owe money to saying, well, hey, halt all of this activity. You're going to deal directly with the trustee to prove the amount of the debt that's owed. Uh, and then the individual who's filed the proposal, they don't have to deal with those creditors ever again. They just deal fairly with the trustee. They work with the trustee to complete the consumer proposal. Um, and then that, that's all that they have to do. But as soon as they sign the proposal, they get that immediate relief. And then what happens with the proposal is like any proposal in life, it could be either accepted or rejected. So a lot of people think, well, you're offering them back 30 cents in the dollar. Aren't most creditors just going to reject this proposal? And I often say, well, yeah, if you as an individual made a proposal to give your creditors back 30 cents, they're going to laugh and say, no way, not going to happen. But when it comes through a trustee, um, I show them the alternative. The alternative is if they don't accept this proposal, the person could, not required to, but could choose to file a bankruptcy, and then they might end up with nothing. So in general, 30 cents in the dollar is a whole lot better than zero cents in the dollar. So it's almost every case. It's over 95% of the time a consumer proposal is accepted on the first offer. You have a wonderful list of the general benefits to doing a consumer proposal. Can we touch on some of those as we wrap up this segment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think let's hit the main ones here. So, you know, first off, it's going to simplify your life. So it's a single payment you're going to make each month, regardless of the amount of debt that you have, different terms, different dates, just one payment you make. And that payment is going to be significantly reduced from the amount that you're already paying each month for minimum payments, interest charges, so on and so forth. Again, usually in the range of 20 to 40, maybe 50% repayment is most typical proposals. That's just a huge savings. I think the last thing to, to highlight here is it allows you to consolidate your debts without borrowing. So what a lot of people are looking to do is to do a debt consolidation. They start with their bank, they get denied, and they don't know what to do from there. A consumer proposal is going to achieve essentially the same thing, putting all your debts together, but you didn't have to borrow, you didn't have to you know, put any more funds at risk, and the consolidation is just going to be what you can afford, not the full amount and definitely not the full amount plus interest. So it gives you something you can afford, something you can feel successful when you make those payments each month, and you're going to be able to put it behind you relatively quickly uh, compared to paying off all the debts in full over time. And I just want to throw in as we wrap up, a licensed insolvency trustee, folks, they're the only ones that can facilitate a consumer proposal, one. Two, if you want more information, go to the Sands & Associates website. It's just filled with good information about consumer proposals, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, for that first free consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.